Crazy Chester Radio Hour. I'm excited to have my friend and mentor, Buzz Kaysen, back on the program today. Uh, he was my very first guest when I launched the podcast, and uh, we talked about his whole career, but there's so many more stories that, that I wanted to, uh, to capture here, and uh, Buzz agreed to be back on the show, and today we'll focus on on his songwriting and some of the recordings that might not be as well known to the public. Uh, so uh, let's go down that rabbit hole. Thanks for being on my show again, Buzz. Oh, it's great to be here, Andreas, being back on the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. And uh, I know you've had some outstanding guests in the recent months, and uh, I'm glad to be a part of it. And um, just so uh, uh, thankful for you having this to you know, to reveal some of these stories and um, uh, bibliography or record discographies or whatever to folks that may not know about them, you know? Yeah, that's that's important to me, too, to make sure that history gets doesn't get lost because uh, there's, so, there's, uh, there's a lot of information out there and sometimes it's hard, hard to, uh, to, to find it. And if I can contribute a little bit to that, I'll, I'll be happy to. So let's let's go back to you starting to write songs. I remember uh, you told me that when you met Bobby Russell and he asked you if you were a songwriter, you answered yes. And by that time, you'd written like half of a song. Yeah, that's right. So uh, why don't we start there? Yes, the, uh, the first song that... Um I probably completed uh, to to maybe maybe possibly get recorded. I may have had just a few that I was fooling around with, but um, I uh, was in a band called The Casuals, and um, Richard Williams was my co-singing partner, and Noel um, uh, Ball, the DJ that uh, kind of had taken us under his wing, asked us to record for him, and... Um, we were to sneak into the WSIX AM studios late one night after everything was had finished on broadcasting and, and and record a record. So we needed some songs. So he said, you guys write some songs, whatever you, you come up with, we'll record. So um, I was living, still living at home out on R.D. Avenue. Uh, I was 17 and, uh, well, actually 16 when we wrote the song. Oh, and I had Richard come out of the house. I had an old upright piano. And um, we wrote this song called My Love Song for You. It was kind of a C to A minor, F to G, what they call nowadays a doo-wop kind of a ballad. And um, we uh, took that and uh, a B-side. We had a B-side called Help Me, which was kind of a, 
a blues thing uh, on the B-side. And um, we took the casuals down to WSX Studios and recorded it. I remember, I don't even think we had a bass on My Love Song For You. We may have had one on the B-side for some reason. But but anyway, um, we recorded it, and um, it came out on a little label called New Sound, which was um, uh, a, a label that that Noel had started with Buzz Wilburn, who Buzz's brother was um, uh, uh, another Wilburn, um, his name's slipping my mind right now, who was an engineer uh, that became uh, pretty well known in Nashville. Uh, but but they, they asked me to do a label, so I, I drew out, I was an amateur artist, and I, I did the label for the for the record company and uh, I guess my love song for you is the first song out on it and uh, Noel Ball managed to get Randy Wood to pick it up for Dot Records because he was he was involved with uh, good friends with Randy and had played all the Pat Boone records and he was I don't know whether he was on on Randy's payroll or what but <laughs> but he he had a real strong connection with him and he he got it released uh, nationally on Dot so that was um, my first delve into songwriting. And um, then as you mentioned, later on, that was in 56. and um, Well, 57 is when the record came out. And um, uh, along about 58, 59, I met Bobby Russell down at uh, Globe Studios. And that's when he asked me the question, do you write songs? So Bobby asked me, he said, uh, do you write? And I said, yeah, I'd written one half of one song, so I figured I qualified uh, to be a writer. And um, he was uh, uh, kind of halfway signed to to Gary Walker for Lowry Music. Gary was representing Lowry up here from Atlanta. And um, so we, he said, Look, come out to my house. We went out to his house out on Sperry Road out in the Green Hills area. And um, we proceeded to write Tennessee, which uh, we went in to re- record it. And Gary said, "Well, let's make a record out of it." So we we had um, Bergen White was had come into the fold. He was a student still over at Belmont, and um, we had um, I don't know who whether we had Eddie Studeville on guitar or what. I don't I cannot rem- recall the musicians, but. We recorded this song, Tennessee, which was a pa 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 kind of a song. And um, Gary got it to Paul Cohen, who was at Todd Records, uh, which Todd was named after his son. He had, you may recall, was the first producer in Nashville um, for Decca Records. And um, Owen Bradley had more or less replaced him, so he went on his own and formed this small label. And... uh, he put it out under the name of the Todds, and it was, it was pretty good little record uh, for for its day. And uh, then Gary moved on and got uh, in touch with either Lou Adler or Snuff Garrett. They were co-producing this session on Jan and Dean, and Jan and Dean had had Baby Talk, which was another ba 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 kind of a record. And um, they flipped over Tennessee and put it out, and it got in the charts. So Bobby and I thought, man, this is easy. Our first song's a hit, you know. I mean, it wasn't really that big a hit, but it it got in the charts, in the Billboard charts. And um, uh, later on, we would write Popsicle together, which would uh, 
not come out for for a few years, but Popsicle got in top twenty. It was a, a pretty good hit for them, and it, it followed the same path. It, we we did it as the Todds, and then Gary got it covered by the by Jan and Dean. So um, we were kind of on our way there, writing and uh, just coming up with uh, songs along the way, and we had. Um, uh, a kind of a little partnership with Tony Moon for a while uh, called Triarch Productions. We thought we were going to be a production company. We had no money and no artists or anything, but uh, we uh, produced a few little things along the way. And uh, but in the meantime, we we had uh, several uh names of uh, we we would do fictitious groups like we'd had. Uh, Tony and I wrote one called Watermelon, which we put out under the name of the Countdowns, and uh, we had uh, we had some other ones that, uh, that that came along the way too. And I brought along some of the 45 from way back in those years uh, when we were you know doing just random records because you know you could do a, a 45 and, and and get it out pretty quick and. You didn't have to worry about an album unless you had a hit or, or maybe two hits before you, you, you got an album. So um, we, uh, Tony and I wrote some together, and then along in 62, we wrote The Soldier of Love or Lay Down Your Arms as it came out for originally. And um, Arthur Alexander recorded that because once again, Noel Ball came into the picture, picture and he produced that record. And uh, he said, if you guys write something for Arthur, I'll record it. He had a great network voice. <laughs> and uh, so it was one of those rare instances where you write something for an artist and they actually cut it. Um, of course, that song has gone on to have a little life of its own, being covered by the likes of the Beatles and Pearl Jam and <laughs> the Derailers and... Uh, Marshall Crenshaw. Marshall Crenshaw did a nice version of it, but um, um, we, we, you know, it it was just a joy going into the studio and just experimenting around, and uh, these guys, Kenny Marlowe, um, who became uh, Bobby and I, my attorney for for several years, uh, and then Gary went on to work for various publishing companies. And he, uh, Gary Walker, still active in his 80s. He has the uh, the Great Escape record stores, and uh, still piddles with some production on things. And uh, he's quite a man. I owe a whole lot to him. Uh, he 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 encouraged Bobby and I when we were just struggling, just you know, just kind of throwing darts in the in the dark. And uh, <laughs> he he had had confidence in us but um, uh, we had uh, several little pseudonyms along the way and uh, I'm, I'm rambling through these 45s even as we speak to try to come up with a couple that uh, that were like that um, I uh, moved to California in 62 and uh, uh, Carol Connors would come around the studio around Liberty Records where I worked and um, 
she had written Hey Little Cobra and uh, had, had received a Mustang for riding it, <laughs> a complimentary Mustang, which I got to drive down through the alleys of, of Hollywood. Um, and uh, she she always had something going, and I'm, I'm pulling out a song now, this is from 62, called Sammy the Sidewalk Surfer. And uh, some way or another, Screen Gems became the publisher on this. Uh, it's by the Surfettes. It was a girls' group on the Mustang record label, still capitalizing on on the well on the Ford uh, muscle car thing, and um, so that was uh, that was one of them that we put out. I, I that was that was a girls' group though. That wasn't me under another name, <laughs> although I sang a lot of high parts along the way. Yeah. And, um, Around the same time, you also became Gary Miles, didn't you? Well, um, yeah, Gary happened before that, happened in 1960. And uh, um, he was a six-month star. That was when we covered the uh, the name Gary Mills, who was the original singer in the, the movie um, Circus of Horrors. And uh, <laughs> they, uh, I, it, it probably is one of the only times it ever happened that Someone covered the, the the song and the name of the of the of the, the record, and we we did a couple of other Gary Miles records, but they weren't ever anything that I wrote. It was Snuff Garrett would pull a song out from New York or something, and we would uh, we would uh, go in and record that, but. Um, I, of course, wrote some for the crickets. Uh, when I moved to L.A., Snuff gave me the crickets and Buddy Knox to record. And uh, I came, brought Buddy back to Nashville and re we recorded Thanks A Lot, which was an old Ernest Stubb record, and uh, which, which I didn't write. But uh, then he gave me the crickets, and our first record we did was Lonely Avenue, which I also didn't write. Of course, that was a Ray Charles song. Yeah, and, uh, I think that's a Doc Pomus composition. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, it is. And um, we we long about '64. Uh, we recorded a version of La Bamba that Jerry Allison and I wrote to the tune of La Bamba, and Leon Russell worked on the record with us, uh, arranged the horns, and played piano on it, and um, and then we. We also, prior to that, went to Clovis. Uh, Jerry wanted to take one more trip to Clovis and record with Nor Norman Petty. Of course, when we went down there, we knew we would have to give him the publishing, which was a bizarre demand on Norman's part, but that's the way he did business, so we just said, well, the heck with it. We'll, we'll do it just for the fun of it. We wrote uh, You Can't Be In Between, and there's a couple of other songs that Jerry Allison and I wrote for that project. But uh, La Bamba managed to make it up pretty high in the charts in England, and uh, I had replaced Jerry Naylor in the Crickets as lead singer. And uh, we had a great tour of England in 64. We did about 30 dates, uh, and uh, one right after the other, and played Royal Albert Hall and uh, played the Wimbledon Palais. We, we played a lot of... But mainly it was small... Uh, venues and and some theaters 
but uh, it was a fun trip. And well, wasn't John Lee Hooker on some of those shows, too? Well, um, we were on Ready, Steady, Go, which was the big TV show. And John Lee was on that show along with Dusty Springfield, the Swinging Blue Jeans, and the Animals were also all on that that TV show. And uh, that was where you just played live. You played one song live, and we did La Bamba. And um, Jerry Allison sang lead on La Bamba, so he picked up the acoustic, and I sat on the drums and kind of just flogged away. <laughs> and uh, right when the uh, when they they introduced us. The power went out, so Sonny and Sonny Curtis was playing guitar on it, and uh, Glenn D. Harden was playing a, a bass with the left hand on a Fender keyboard bass and a little electric piano on the right hand, and all that went out, and it was nothing but me and J.I. for about eight bars there, just playing with an acoustic and drums. But uh, that was quite a TV show. That, that was really an experience. And um, we... Uh, came back to, to, to L.A., and then I, I moved back in um, later on in, in, in late 64. I moved back to Nashville, and that's when Bobby Russell and I got serious about starting our publishing company, and we, we got in with Fred Foster, and uh, that's along about the time of 67, Matt Gaden and I wrote Everlasting Love, which came out on the Rising Suns label, which was a subsidiary of Monument that... Uh, Fred had formed with Bobby and I and his partner Jack Kirby, and um, we we had limited success with Robert. We had the one song was he, he was really kind of a one hit wonder, um, but uh, we got I brought along a copy of My Rainbow Valley, which came out after Everlasting Love. Now, some of you may know that Everlasting Love was covered in England by The Love Affair on CBS Records. And um, Peter Phillips, our publisher over there, uh, got that cover. And um, we wish he had just gotten Robert's released and we'd had the hit with Robert. But uh, as it turned out, it went number one with The Love Affair. And then uh, the follow-up, Rainbow Valley, went real high. I, it may have even gone number one. But the, 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 once again, the Rainbow Valley didn't hit with Robert, but it hit with, with The Love Affair. And... Um, we proceeded on to make a few more records with uh, with Robert, but uh, in the meantime, and, and a few years prior to that, uh, we we cut under some uh, oddball names uh, and did a record with the Hollywood Argyles called Bossy Nover, which <laughs> it was called My Real Boss Bossy Nover. It was produced by Papa Don Schroeder written by me, and I have no idea how it went, <laughs> featuring the Hollywood Argyles featuring Speedy Gonzalez and the Tijuana lead, whatever that meant. And then here's another one that was, uh, interestingly enough, uh, the orchestra was conducted by Jerry Kennedy, the great producer uh, from Mercury Records, but it was Lonely Birthday, written by myself and Bobby Russell by Shirley May, and produced by Jack Tracy, who I can't remember. In fact, I played this at home a while ago, and I couldn't couldn't remember the song. Uh, there was another small label that used to record here at the studio uh, called Caprice Records, and uh, it was um, 
it was owned by Don Lewis, uh, who who had a, a a kind of a custom label. He would record people coming in that paid him to record them and uh, all of that stuff. And he this this particular piece of vinyl here is like on red vinyl. It's called Texas, and uh, uh, it was a, another flop record. <laughs> But, uh, and then there, the B side is Heavy Dudes and Heartaches that is yeah. credited to you and Jimmy Buffett. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Heavy Dudes and Heartaches was the B side. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Buffett and I had started writing together in '70 on the High Cumberland Jubilee project. It was done right here in this studio we're sitting in, and uh, we wrote uh, "Coming Down Slow," "God Don't Own a Car," uh, "England," uh, several songs on that. Bend a little is one of my favorites. Uh, which one? Bend a little. Yeah, bend a little was it was a good one. Yeah, and uh, we we uh, had fun doing that. You you mentioned uh, Papa Don Schroeder a little earlier. He eventually came up here and did a cover of Everlasting Love on Carl Carlton yeah, here. Yeah, right here, here, at the right here in this studio. Yes, uh huh. Uh, and you sang on that too, didn't you? Yeah, I got to sing the high voice parts on on that and Robert Knight's record, and um, that was quite a treat. Yeah, that the Carl Carlton was a million seller, and uh, I just found another one by my old good friend Johnny McRae, who was a uh, uh, Bob Beckham's right hand man in plugging songs down on the row, and he was at the time was in with Gary Paxton, and they. They cut a song of mine called Tag Along. And um, he, gosh, they would cut a single a week. They would cut, that was on the Felstead label. Which I don't know if you ever heard of that or not. No, but I have not. Felstead had some hits. and I, That Hollywood Argyles record was on Felstead as well. Yes, that that was, uh, Hollywood Argyles, of course, had Alley Oop earlier in about 1960. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but moving along, um, we're kind of taking the back side of things. Uh, uh, on into the 70s, uh, Bucky Wilkin and I, who in 66 in had had a hit on Sandy, we co wrote. And um, we wrote several songs on the Sandy album. And, uh, then later we we did a experimental record. It went up on Warner Brothers. Uh, he was friends with Dick Glazer as I was. I had worked with Dick Glazer at Liberty Records. He was a producer there, and we we cut a record under the name of the Eagles. We were the first Eagles, and um, the uh, ballad to a lady was I believe considered the A side. It was a a patriotic song that um, it. Uh, in the end, it had the acrostic A-M-E-R-I-C-A and may each uh, and may each I can't think how it was. It went anyway. It, it, uh, it, it spelled out America, whatever the uh, acrostic was for it. Um we we did a couple of records on Robert Knight 
uh, around that time, 67, one that I just picked up here. It's called Smokey, written by Matt Gaden and I. It was a classic little song, and uh, uh, the B-side was If I Had My Way. That was a one that, uh, and we did Isn't It Lonely Together, which Ray Stevens wrote. We did that for, for Elf. Yeah, records. so we mentioned Rising Suns before, and there's quite a few 45s that came out on the Rising Suns. And then you had Elf. What? Who were your partners in Elf? Um, uh, that was just Bobby Russell and I, and we were distributed by uh, Amy Malabell out of New York, Larry Utah. Uh, Larry kind of took us under, a wing, under his wing, and we kind of had Rising Suns and Elf going at the same time for a while. And uh, Larry put a red phone on our on my desk down in Nashville. He said, "I want to always be able to get in touch with you." He he took pride in that. And we he if we sent him something that he really liked, he'd call and say, "Man, I love this record." You know, he he was a fun guy to work with. He was really uh, really a, a, a true record man. He uh, the only problem we had was the R and B records. Um, the the pale scare came along and and. Bell was was afraid to get in the middle of that, so back then you just had to figure out a way to pay the the jocks uh, on the R and B side to, to to ever have a hit. Um, but um, we had um, a couple of other uh, records on um, with uh, Robert in England on the Monument label. Uh, Better get ready for love, which was written by myself and Skip Rogers, who was a writer for me. And um, Somebody's Baby was on the the B-side, which was actually, I believe, the B-side of Everlasting Love originally. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Somebody's Baby it was. But uh, uh, going back to Elf, uh, there was quite, quite a bit of material coming out on Elf. Some Clifford Curry, Bobby Russell... You put some out on him. Uh, Billy Swan, I believe, did a 45 on Elf, too. Um, he, he did one on Rising Suns first called Friendship. And I can't recall what he did on Elf. Uh, um, but uh, uh, we had, uh, of course, our big hit on, on Elf was Bobby Russell's 1432 Franklin Pike Circle Hero which was kind of a Roger Miller-type sounding thing. And uh, that hit uh, pretty well to like a top 20 record with, with Bobby. And uh, <clears throat> it wasn't long after that that we broke up our partnership. He moved to California. And uh, then I moved around here in, in 1970 to uh, Creative Workshop. So um, yeah. Was the Bobby Russell album the only album Elf put out? Because it was mainly 45s, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the only only uh, album called Words, Words, Music, Laughter, and Tears is was the name of the the, the album. Uh, there's a I picked up a Jimmy Buffett 45 from those early days off of Barnaby, and we had a song called LSD, E L L I S D E E. I noticed on the label it came out He Ain't Free, which that was the that was the hook of the song, LSD, He Ain't Free. It was kind of a anti-drug, anti-LSD song, if you can believe that. 
It came out on, on Barnaby, and um, the B-side was There's Nothing Soft About Hard Times, which is a, one of my favorite old Jimmy Buffett songs. And it um, wasn't long after that that Larry Rogers was running Mega Records. Larry, who had um, Studio 19 for years, and he still has Studio 19 out at the Sound Kitchen here in, in 2018. Uh, he uh, picked up a song of mine, uh, called Turning Your Back on Me, which was kind of a kind of a rocker. It was a pretty good pretty good song. And on the back side was a song called Bilpy, which was a <laughs> a term for a hillbilly groupie Bilpy. <laughs> and uh those were just a couple of the the the, the oddball there's, records that there's another forty five I wanna mention here. Uh that you put out and that became a hit in Australia and there was a song called Adam and Eve. That's, How did that fit into the whole That's right. Thing? I I that was during my Billy Joe Royal phase. <laughs> I was kinda imitating him on the vocal. And um it, it that's the only place it hit was in Australia and it was a top ten record. Went number one in Adelaide and a, a couple of other territories. I just recently did a interview with um uh, uh, radio station there and they had all the information on all the, s the songs that we'd had out in Australia in, including Groupie and Hayride and uh, Lala which were three bubblegum records that Mac Gaden and I produced in, under different names that got covered by known groups over there the Flying Circus and um, a couple of others wasn't uh, Haystack one of those two? Uh, hey, Hayride. Hayride. That yeah, Hayride was uh, one that was, uh, uh, that might have been the first Saturday morning cartoon show. That was the name of the fictitious group that we did that under. And that, that was quite a hit, for I think, for the Flying Circus. And um, um, the... Uh, trying to think who, what else was a hit over there uh mac and i we 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 just liked to be in the studio and we would cut something that turn us on it came to mind and we'd go in and record it so, so bef before you had creative workshop would you mainly work at spar or where, where were some of the recording studios recorded? Uh, it worked at fred foster studio down on 7th avenue downtown quite almost exclusively Okay. Down there, yeah, we we didn't do much other than the sound alike records at, at Spar. Um, uh, we would work occasionally at Woodland, and and occasionally at at uh, Sound Shop, which okay. uh, no longer exists. Yeah, but you just mentioned the sound alike records, and I think some of the didn't you meet Travis Turk in that environment? Yes, yes, that's where I met Travis, was in that basement studio at the Baker Building here, close to Vanderbilt University in Nashville, and uh, uh, Travis and I became good friends, and then I coaxed him into coming out here and, and uh, starting Creative Workshop with me, and um, so he played an important part in the uh, the building of this studio. Um, and was it Jimmy Buffett, was he on a few things? over there too or is is that, is that a myth uh no it's far some of those sound alike 
Uh, no, he that that's no, he wasn't on any of them. No, he the the reason that that rumor got around was they took a picture out at the airport of a bunch of singers next to the uh, uh, a jet airplane out there, and they called it the Now Generation. And they needed a bunch of people to be in the picture, and Buffett was hanging around, and he he went out there with us, and got in the picture. So they mistakenly people thought he was on the record. Uh, on that, it was a bunch compilation of a bunch of covers. Yeah, bunch of the bunch of the sound alike records. And I, I know you're you're not necessarily as fond of that stuff, but that catalog has kind of discovered its own underground following i know quite a few people here around nashville who worship those sound like records yeah, yeah they were they were pretty bad to tell you the truth i mean they in in retrospect they 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 were as good as we could get them you know under the circumstances of having to rush through them and not have the best studio in the world we had had real good musicians yeah. and um, they did we, something we, similar in in England too, Elton John ended up singing a lot of those before he had a career as an artist. I'll be, yeah. Hey, there was another 45 that came out in Warner Brothers for you. Where was love? And the B-side was Endless Circle. Do you remember that? Yes, that that was a fairly decent record, and um, uh, I, I believe Dick Glasser became involved I think he was still with Warner Brothers then when, when he put that out um, I believe I finished the record I don't I don't know whether we did some overdubs in, in California on it or not but I think I did the original record here the at least the original tracks and um, so I can say I was on Warner Brothers for a brief period of time <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, there was another single called Places that you wrote with uh, Dan Penn. That's right. Yeah, that was on Janus Records. And um, uh, Steve, uh, well, I can't think of his last name. I'm bad on last names today. Uh, a friend of mine had been a DJ down in South Carolina, and he got in the record business and got involved with, with Janus. And he picked that record up from us. I was always kind of proud of that. It was kind of a cool sounding little record. Yeah, and that was one of the of your early collaborations with Dan. Although I know you met him in the, I guess, very early 60s. Yes, yes, that was uh, one of the first ones we wrote. And then come up to... Uh, end of the 70s we wrote another woman for tj shepherd which was a pretty big country hit for us and then we had a we had a jerry Lee lewis cover called you're all too ugly tonight which is a zany kind of a thing i was talking to jerry kennedy about that the other day uh, <clears throat> bobby and i wrote one for la costa who was tanya tucker's sister uh, she actually was on Capitol Records, and it was produced by Doug Gilmore, who was a, a friend of Bobby's, and um, it's called Jesse and the Light, written uh, kind of a mystical kind of a thing, Louisiana-sounding thing. And, uh, and then also along that time, 
R.W. Blackwood, who was part of the Blackwood uh, Brothers family, uh, recorded one that um, me and Austin Roberts had written called Dolly. And it, it was the story of Dolly, and uh, it was on Scorpion Records, whatever that was. And um, then Austin and I, along with Charlie Black, wrote Timeless and True Love. Yeah, uh, that was that, a big hit for the McCarters. Yeah, the McCarters on Warner Brothers. And um, then we had a another cut with them, too. Um, uh Quiet Desperation was a, was an album cut on that album, and um, and then there was this, I guess, band of expats in Germany. They were called the Lords, and they they recorded one of your songs, "The Good Side of June." Yeah, that's right. And and what were they ex? Well, they were. I think I don't know if they're. They were. I think either British or Americans who ended up in Germany. I don't know if they were oh. soldiers. I believe they might have been American soldiers, who just kind of all ended up there. Yeah. And uh, and started that band. Yeah, that song did pretty well over there. It, we've got royalties for years from that that song in Germany. And the good side of June. I, I think I put it out. I may have put it out on Rising Suns originally myself. I don't know. Okay. And I, another, and I know we're like jumping back and forth here, but on Elf, you had Van and Titus too. Yes, Mac and I wrote Cry Baby Cry for them, which it, it hit the bottom of the charts. It it did a little R&B wise, but it was a tremendous record. And you can tell us about the... Um, the recent cover over the last couple of years. Yeah, Christine Allman and Dion did a did a cover about maybe five years ago of the song, and uh, she, I guess, randomly, you know, discovered the forty five somewhere, and she said, "I just love this song," and she wanted to do her version yeah. of it. And uh, I, I, we were honored, Mac and I were honored, that they, they covered our arrangement almost exactly, the voices and everything that we put on it, and it was cool. And um, uh, later on, a couple of, the, a couple of the hits that I wrote, later on was um, Tommy Overstreet's And Don't Go Running. That was about, uh, I think it was 72, I think. And then um, uh, Mel Tillis' uh, Million Old Goodbyes was written with uh, Steve Gibb and Bobby Russell. Um, and uh, that was kind of a funny story because I'd, I'd wanted to get those two guys together to write. And so Bobby said, well, why don't we all three just write it? So we proceeded to go. There was a club out at, at the corner of Brentwood. Nothing was in Brentwood then. It was just the corner of Old Hickory Boulevard and Brentwood, and there was a, a, a combination motel with a with a restaurant and kind of a cool restaurant, had good steaks and everything. So we went up out there and proceeded to get, well, they got pretty sloshed. I figured someone had to stay, be a quarterback and stay straight. And I said, well, let's go try to write this song after we'd talked for a couple of hours. We came back down here to Creative and, and uh, Bobby said, okay, Gib, play me one of those beautiful melodies. And he wrote, da-da-da, da-da-da. 
just just right off the bat, and that became the key melody to it. There's a plane out tonight, and I swear to you I'm going to take that fly. And it just fell together like magic, and uh, Mel just loved it. it. It went top, I think, five or four or something like that. And that was one of the inside stories to that. It was produced by Jimmy Bowen, and Mel had had a couple of number one records prior to that, and this, this record was tearing up the charts, and lo and behold, Bowen and Mel got in an argument, got in a fight over something, and he pulled the plug on the promotion and kept it out of number one. So, But anyway, we were very pleased to, to have that, and Mel sang it for years on his show. He, he would tell me about it, and he said, man, I love that song, I'm still doing it. And um, and around the same time, you wrote quite a few songs for or with Freddie Weller, too. Yeah, yeah. We had uh, limited success. We had Go For The Night. We had a Go For The Night album. And uh, actually, Freddie did a version of, of A Million Old Goodbyes uh, along the way. Uh, yeah, Freddie and I had a, had a good good time together. Um And I, I failed to mention a song written by Bobby Russell, which started our Russell Kaysen catalog before he wrote Honey and Little Green Apples. He wrote The Joker Went Wild by Brian Hyland, produced by Leon, arranged by Leon Russell, and produced by Snuff Garrett and Leon. It was our first hit for Rising Suns. Yeah. <clears throat> now, somebody else you had a you know, long relationship with Going back, I think, to the late 50s is, was Brenda Lee when you backed her up with the casuals. And then, I believe in 72, you actually ended up writing a song for her called The Waiting Game. That's right. It was on the backside of Think, one of her big ballads. So we took a three, free ride on that. And uh, Bob Beckham and I had an, another cut with Brenda later on. Uh, which the title is slipping my mind, but uh, I had uh, Bob became the premier publisher in Nashville, uh, taking over Combine Music with Fred Foster, and he did he had a hit on just as much as ever, which I don't know who the writer was on, but uh, I'm pulling out a 45 here that came out in the gosh it would have been the late 60s called Midnight. Uh, written by me and Bob, and Footprints, also written by Bob Beckham and I. And uh, then we got a cover on the one of ours, one that I wrote with Bob called The Sound of a Broken Heart. We wrote those for Champion Music, which was uh, the publishing wing of Decca Records. Bill Downer was the publishing guy. <clears throat> and um, Also, the... Uh, you you probably recall the Fleetwoods. Yeah. Come go with me. Bobby and I had a record in the 60s called Ruby Red and Baby Blue by the uh, the Fleetwoods, produced by Dick Glasser. And so on. You told me once that, and I believe that was when you were out in L.A., you had a, an encounter with Frank Zappa. What was that? Yes, uh, the uh, I would screen people off of the streets, uh, just uh, 
when when the secretary down front, we kind of had a thing going. I said, well, look, if they if they look halfway legitimate or look like they have a story or something interesting, uh, send them up. So she said, I got one for you. She said, this guy's name is Frank Zappa from Cucamonga, California. I said, I got to meet this guy. So he comes up. He's got, just like the rest of us, we wore those, uh, not always mohair suit, but tight-fitting 60s-type suits with pompadour hair, and he had his hair short with a pompadour. And he came up and had a, a batch of songs. And um, But the main thing he, he was talking about, he, he was just real open with me, and he was talking about go, having to go through a divorce and all this stuff. And so uh, not being much of a counselor, I said, well, what kind of a song... What kind of songs do you have? And he gave me one. Um, uh, I, I remember the riff to it. It was going back again to see the one I left behind me when I went out to see the big old world. Da, 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 da. You know, he was big on writing riffs. He would play a whole set with just riffs. Uh, and uh, we, we wound up recording that. I recorded it, uh, Snuff produced it, and we recorded it with... Uh, with Ricky Page, who was a background singer. She's a tremendous voice, this girl had. But it never came out, and we recorded another one of his. So he always claimed that next to Art LeBeau at Oldies But Goodies, that I was the second person to ever listen to his songs and try to do something with them. And I went down to Houston one night, uh, and uh, I was on my way back to Nashville and got flight got canceled so I, I saw where he was playing and I managed to get to the to the venue and he called me out in the audience and told everybody that here's a guy back there that's the second guy that ever listened to my songs and that was funny yeah and uh, so earlier you mentioned like some of the band names you made up just on the spot for to put out the 45 there was another one uh that came out on Elf, and there was the Saturday morning cartoon show. Yes, that was the ones I was talking about that Mac and I did. We did Hayride, the original Hayride. Yeah, and Lala. Lala, yeah. And they, they were the ones that were covered in Australia uh, quite successfully. Who what was in there? Was it mainly Mac yeah. and you? Yeah, it was just me and Mac and, and some musicians, probably Kenny Butcher on drums and... and uh. No telling who on bass and keyboards, but um, we did those um, probably with Brent Mayer up at uh, Fred Foster Studio, I would imagine. Yeah. And but, then we mentioned that you uh, you collaborate with Jimmy Buffett and you also recorded him and some of the musicians that ended up on the Buffett records they later became White Duck, and they did a couple albums here too, didn't they? And John Hyatt was part of one of them. Yes, um, um, I talked to the guys and said, "Let's let's make a record." And um, um, by then, Jimmy had kind of moved on. He never used them on the road. Um, they did a. Back to him here in Nashville at the old Nashville Music Festival, which Joe Sullivan and I started back in 1970, and um, maybe maybe I played a couple of things with him, but uh, he couldn't afford to carry anybody on the road. He couldn't afford to pay them, so um, uh, they 
you know, we, we uh, a couple of the guys, Mario Friedel and Don Klutzke, was very were very good writers, real creative guys. And um, I said, let's put some stuff down. So we put it down here in the, the um, that would have been the old room, the old configuration of Creative Workshop. And uh, I got in touch with Russ Reagan, um, and uh, he he put the uh, the stuff out, and um, we unfortunately got kind of shafted by a manager. Um, I can't think of this guy's name now, but he he had little feet in the early days. I want to say it was Rick Smith. I I don't I can't recall, but it was on the 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 album was on Uni Records, which was a subsidiary of Universal, uh, MCA. And Russ Reagan ran it, and um, um, uh, it, it was really a cool record. And we we were all geared up to uh, go on tour, and and the uh, he had already Russ had already granted tour support, but the the manager didn't come through with the dates. He didn't come through with the tour, so we were screwed. So, um, but but in the meantime, we did well enough with that record to to um, uh, merit doing another second record. And we, when we did, the guys had um, started hanging out with John Hyatt, who was 17 at the time. <laughs> and John got in the group and sings on uh, the, the second uh, record. Uh, I think it's called In Season. He sings a couple of solos yeah, on you, that. You got a writing credit on a song called Bull Island Boogie. Yeah, Bull, Bull Island was a huge festival that took place up uh, in Indiana. It was it had a larger turnout than than Woodstock. It was uh, I don't know it had a hundred fifty thousand people or something. It was crazy, and we we wrote a song about that experience. <laughs> I remember we didn't go on. I say we because I was up there with White Duck. Didn't go on till about four to five in the morning everybody was just all passed out and but uh it was quite the, quite the experience yeah we uh just listened to an interview with jimmy buffett where he was talking about that second album he did the high C uh, cumberland jubilee album where it was like concept records were like the thing to do i guess at that time there was another concept record you were involved with and that was uh fox the yeah. revolt of uh, emily young the, yeah the revolt of emily young yeah we, we were we were kind of ahead of our time because we did that before anybody ever did it we called it a rock novella we recorded it out at wayne moss studio out at cinderella and pepper martin and i wrote most everything on it and it was on Decca, but Decca was just cold as ice then. It, Decca couldn't pr promote a rock band at all. It was before the Who and all the, the other acts that came along later. But uh, it was a good record. You know, it was a. Uh, it had its had its high points. <laughs> yeah, and then I guess up through the mid seventies, you put up. 45s under your own own name and some of those various other names but then you uh you made a, an album for 
for Dick James music. How did that record come about? Yeah, for DJM, well, um, I was friends with Arthur Braun. He would come um, uh, visit. I don't know what his role was. Uh, he was uh, kind of represented the record company and the publishing, and he would come to see me, and I'd play him some demos, and he'd say, you need to make a record. I said, oh, man, I'm, I'm well past that. And um, that would have been, you may know better than me, I think it was 1980, I believe, when we made that record. Um, yeah, I think it was 77. Yeah, and I said, okay. And um, we um, um, had had a good bunch of guys on it. Um, had Jerry Kerrigan, Randy Goodrum on keyboard, um, Steve Gibson on guitar, probably Jack Williams on bass, and uh, it uh, the, the kind of a similar thing happened. Um, we had it lined up, and I don't know who the agent was, but uh, oh, Mo West was involved. Dottie West's son, who was a tremendous musician, was was involved in the in the uh, the band version of I don't know whether he played on the the sessions or not, but he was was willing to go on the road with me and um we did a showcase for uh, a guy from new york carmen um can't think of his last name uh uh and and arthur braun we did a showcase at a club over here and they really liked it they said well come to new york meet with stephen james who was dick james son and um i remember robbie Robertson, uh, the uh, was kind of acting like a manager for me. We we flew up to New York and and laid out our plans to to tour, and we had a all star band and everything. And uh, Stephen James just shot us down. Just said, "No, we can't. We can't do that. We don't have the budget for that." And we were just stuck, you know, with a with a nice album and nowhere to go, you know. So, because uh, <clears throat> in those days you had to have tour support to carry a around a band and not get paid very much for the gigs you know so but yeah. uh it was a good album it was very reminiscent of somebody like elton john or sounded very british to me for for some reason yeah it, it kind of has that flavor it sure does yeah it's got some some pretty decent songs on it i, I wrote a lot of them and uh then there were some that were written by outside folks but um and then a couple of years later, you did another album on your own Barry Hill uh, label, yeah. Caught Up in a Dream. Caught Up in a Dream, that's right, yeah. Um, we uh, The cover was the best thing about that. <laughs> I went out here on Nolensville Road and crawled up on I had a white suit and a white hat. And crawled up on a load of watermelons. It was, it was kind of a southern theme. I just pulled out a, a 45 over here of "So Fine," the old Fiestas song that we covered on that record. Um, but uh, most of them were original on it. Most of the songs were. Yeah, and was it around the same time that you got to collaborate with Glenn Campbell? Well, it, it, it's it's kind of an odd story. Uh, in uh, 77, they, Arthur arranged for 
us, me and him, to go to Tokyo on the uh, Tokyo Music Festival. So we we had a we needed a song and we needed kind of a pop type song. But Glenn Campbell had sent this idea to Bobby um, called "Everybody Loves Me But You," and Bobby said, "You want to write this thing, finish it?" And I said, "Yes." Yeah. So we finished it, and I submitted it to Arthur. He said, "That's the one. That's the one you need to be doing." And of course, they capitalized over there in Japan on Glenn Campbell wrote this song with Bobby Kaysen and Bobby Russell. You know, and so uh, uh, that that was the uh, I, I never saw Glenn. I knew Glenn from from the '60s from sessions in California, and had seen him several times. But uh, we uh, uh, we did that song had a nice arrangement on it and everything, and uh, we didn't win the festival, but we we had a big time. <laughs> yeah, and then in the mid '80s. You, uh, I think, sound-wise, you almost went back to the beginning a little bit and cut a, what I would consider almost a rockabilly album with BC and the Darts, uh, oh, American yeah. Saturday Night. Yeah, that was in '86. Um, we really had a good time doing that. Um, we had um, on the original one, we had Vip Vipperman on guitar and uh, Richard Carpenter on drums, and. Um, uh, Glenn, uh, well, big, big, big bass player, Glenn Wharf. Glenn, Glenn Wharf, yeah, Glenn Wharf on bass, and uh, that was the original, the original BC and the Darts album, and, uh, and we played and around. Dicky Bats uh, played on that record too. He played on the second record. At, well, no, I guess he did play on that. How did that one, come about? Do you remember song. that? He was he was in town doing something and uh cutting a session. I said, You wanna you wanna play on this thing? He said, Sure, you know, he needed the money, <laughs> evidently. So um, um he played on it and um then we did a second one called Rhythm Bound, which didn't come out till like the late '90s or something on SPV Records out of Germany, they they put uh, they put both of the records out on on a compilation, kind of an album, a double double CD. But um, we had a lot of fun doing that, doing the rockabilly thing. We did it as authentic as we could, with not spoofing rockabilly, but trying to cut like you would cut them back in those days, you know, slap back and simple arrangements and everything, real drive and beat. Yeah, and then the next album was a Soldier of Love album which kind of connected that rockabilly phase with your Americana phase, if I may call it that. Uh, you mean with the derailers, the Soldiers of Love? No, no, your Soldier of Love album. Uh... The East of Nashville. Oh, oh East, see, East of, I'm sorry, East oh, of yeah, Nashville. East of Nashville. Yeah, East of Nashville never really came out. It it was done, uh, that was going to be the title of my book, it was going to be called East of Nashville, Living the Rock and Roll Dream, and then the publishers, Hal Leonard, dropped the East of Nashville part, and um, subsequently I kind of dropped the ball on the album, but uh, it, uh, it had mostly original songs on it, and... Uh, and then 
well, in the late 90s, the derailers cut an album and called it Soldiers of Love and showed them on the front cover with a bunch of military gear and everything. Brian Hofelt was a big Beatles fan, and he had heard that I wrote that Beatles song, and he was real interested in meeting me. We met down at the Texas Music Festival at Larry Joe Taylor's, and uh, I invited him to come up here and record, so that's how that got started. And uh, we wrote some songs for that together. And that's that led to me beginning my so-called Americana career with uh, Hats Off to Hank album along about 2000. And, um, and it's been, I don't know how many albums later, eight or nine, so, so uh, but um, around the, I guess that might have been the, the early to mid '90s too. You started a collaboration with Anthony Crawford. How did you meet Anthony? Yeah, um, actually, it was a golfing friend of mine. Um, Anthony was a golf nut like me. The only difference in us is he can play and I can't. <laughs> He's good and I'm lousy. But uh, Stan Smoot, a, a teacher and a golf teacher and a kind of a little entrepreneur he had a he had told me before about anthony he said yeah i, I gotta hook y'all up y'all ought to really hit it off uh now i had heard anthony sing in this studio one time but <clears throat> i asked somebody who is that and they said it's anthony crawford but i didn't get to meet him and i um i later on saw him down at the old fanfare at the uh, uh, racetrack fairground speedway playing with um uh, dwight yoakam but uh, Stan said, come out. Uh, I, I went out to take a lesson, and I, I always tell everybody I met Anthony in a sand trap because I was taking a lesson on how to get out of a sand bunker, sand trap. And he said, hey, hey I want you to meet this guy. This is Anthony Crawford. So we we made touch base and started recording in a tool shed out at his house in Gladeville, Tennessee, out east of town here and um, we recorded the Radio Cafe album out there and we wrote several songs in fact Destiny which is a song off of that album and How Do You Know are coming out on the next Sugarcane Jane album which is coming up later on this year and Sugarcane Jane is Anthony and his wife yeah that, that's right yeah he later on um, he went through a divorce and moved back, went through a couple of divorces and wound up back in Alabama and met, he had met Savannah before and she went through a divorce and moved back down there and they got together and, and started playing together under the name Sugar Gain Jane and um, we made uh, a record together called Dirt Roads End and um, that uh, made made quite a bit of noise in the Americana field and um, we've written some good songs together, Anthony and I have, and we, we've written several for this new project that's coming up, too. Yeah, so you, you, that's another lo long-term relationship there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I know you, that's not the only one you got, you got cooking at the moment, so uh, you, you've been quite busy recently. Uh, working with different artists and also working on a documentary about the creative workshop studio and the music scene that 
evolved from it here in Barry Hill. And in that documentary, which will come out before too long, there's a theme song that you wrote called Ballad of Barry Hill, where it kind of talks about you starting a studio. Um, how much is, you know, having the studio, how much have you benefited from having that at your disposal whenever you needed to be creative? Well, it, it's been a real asset, I, I think, because um, you, you it, it's there for you. And, and, you know, when you get an idea that you're hot on, it's good to go in and try to put it down while, while you're enthused about it. And um, it, it was always a dream of, well, the original dream of Bobby Russell and I, and then he pulled out of the studio business. But I always wanted it for I, I didn't really intend to go into the uh, the competitive pub, uh, studio business, but we built such a a good place and a good sounding room that people wanted to use it. So, you know, we rented it out to them. You know, and uh, in, in the meantime, my production stuff got kind of pushed off to the side because I couldn't get in the room. You know, it was so busy. But um, been able to come in here with. Originally, Travis Turk was engineer, and then Brent Mayer came back in 1976, and we did the restoration and the improvements, and uh, he was here for quite a few years, and then we built uh, Creative 2 next door, which is now Blackbird, and um, we uh, we were always looking for something new, something fresh to come in and record, you know, so it's it's been good. It's been real real exhilarating and we uh have just finished the the documentary and it tells a story it's called Barry Hill from Creative Workshop and Beyond and we also visit other studios in the in the documentary uh kind of telling the story about how people came out here and kind of followed us out in in 1970 and started coming out and now there's 40 studios in a one mile square mile area so um, it's it's been pretty exciting. Yeah, and I'm um, I know that everybody here in 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 Berry Hill, uh, you know, is real. It's a real community, and I somebody in the in the in the documentary said, "Well, I don't know who the mayor of Berry Hill is, but if you ask me." Buzz Kaysen is the musical mayor of Barry Hill. <laughs> yeah, that was probably John McBride next door, who now, of course, owns owns Blackbird. Yeah, I, I think I interjected in there. I said, well, actually, the king, because <laughs> Steve Gibson always called me, hey, king, king of Barry Hill. Oh, man, yeah. tr trouble is I don't get paid for the job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending this past hour with me going down memory lane. I know that you're always more interested in uh, worrying about what's ahead than what's behind you, so I really appreciate you doing this here for an hour. Yes, Andres, and um, all the best with your show, the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, and uh, it's great being here with you, and anytime you want to do it again, we'll do it. All right, I'm sure mm -hmm. we can find a time. Hide everyone out there. If you want to contact me, it's buzzcason.com. That's true, and the studio is creativeworkshoprecording.com. All right, well, thanks for being my guest today. Thank you.
This is the 26th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at Bus Kaysen's Creative Workshop Recording Studio in the Berry Hill neighborhood of Nashville. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week.